Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Suffering and Smiling, the Buddha. The first step is admitting you have a problem. This advice is famously aimed at those who may be suffering from addiction, but according to the Buddha, it applies to us all. His teaching centers on the Four Noble Truths, and the first of these is that all of us have a problem so pervasive and so difficult to escape that we usually fail to perceive it as a problem at all. The problem is that we are alive, and life is suffering. That's the bad news. And here's the worst news, death is no escape. For in keeping with the doctrine of rebirth and karmic retribution, death will free us from only our current portion of suffering and deliver us directly to another. How can we possibly free ourselves from this predicament? Only by attaining a better understanding of that predicament, which includes coming to understand that we have no selves that need to be set free in the first place. With this teaching, the Buddha signaled his disagreement with the Brahmanic tradition represented by the Upanishads, which made Atman, the self, a central preoccupation. But then the Buddha was no Brahman. According to the elaborate legend of his former lives and final incarnation, he chose to be born into the Kshatriya class, as a royal prince. After his mother dreamed of a white elephant which entered into the side of her body, she conceived the child who would become the Buddha. When he was born, he could already speak and walk. His first deed was to take seven steps and proclaim that life is full of sorrow and that he had come after innumerable life cycles to help free both gods and men from this misery. Despite this precocious declaration, he would spend his youth and early adulthood oblivious of his mission. He grew up in comfort and luxury before he was set on the path to enlightenment when, as a young man, he ventured forth from the palace and was confronted for the first time by the elderly, the sick, and the dead. He retreated to the forest and took up the extreme ascetic practices associated with the ajivakas, only to find them ineffective. Rejecting this path, the Buddha sat beneath a tree and began to meditate. When enlightenment came, he did not keep his newly found wisdom to himself, but gathered students to him, the first Buddhists, and certainly not the last. These details, and far more besides, are contained in the earliest writings about the Buddha and his teachings, sometimes called the Pali Canon because they were written in the Pali language. As with the Upanishads and other ancient Indian texts, we're dealing with an originally oral tradition here, which was set down in writing only centuries after the Buddha's lifetime, which was probably in the 5th century BC. His sayings and conversations are collected in the works called Nikayas, which are in turn only one of three bodies of early Buddhist literature, known as the Tripitaka, or Three Baskets. The other two baskets are the Vinaya Pitaka, which give instructions for Buddhist monks, and the most philosophical of the texts, the Abhidharma, or Higher Teaching. The Pali Canon is the most obvious source for early Buddhist religion and philosophy, but not the only one. For instance, we also have biographies of the Buddha written in Chinese, from the 2nd to 4th centuries AD. Nor should we overlook the importance of architectural and iconographical material, 
notably the ancient burial mounds called stupas, surrounded by decorative railings and statues. Probably, though, you don't need an archaeologist's help to conjure up an image of the Buddha, sitting cross-legged, eyes half-shut, smiling beatifically. And you might wonder, what's with the smiling? Why look so serene when your message to humankind is that life consists of suffering? Well, it turns out there's some good news after all. There are three more noble truths, which concern the cause of suffering, what it would mean to escape suffering, and the path towards that escape. But before we look at the solution to our problem, let's think more about the problem itself. Is the Buddha's rather bleak assessment of our situation plausible? Sure, life does involve disease and, if you're lucky, old age, with death providing the inevitable conclusion. But in the meantime, there's plenty of opportunity to enjoy life. The silent films of Buster Keaton, the occasional almond croissant, and of course, philosophy podcasts. True, the Buddha had no access to any of these, but presumably there were equally worthwhile things available to enjoy in antique India. Well, almost equally worthwhile. Perhaps it would help to make a more serious attempt to set the Buddha's first truth in its historical setting. Life in pre-modern societies, and of course in less affluent places today, is a precarious and often unpleasant affair. The story of how the Buddha leaves the palace and is shocked by the conditions beyond its walls is telling here. Nor should we forget that other spiritual and philosophical movements of his time were taking a rather pessimistic attitude towards life on earth. The Jainas and Ajivakas sought to escape the cycle of rebirth entirely rather than seeking the best rebirth possible. These points could help to explain the Buddha's dramatic conclusion about the pervasiveness of suffering. Then too, some propose a different understanding of this central term suffering or dukkha, might the correct translation be something less dramatic and more obviously inevitable, like dissatisfaction? Unfortunately, this wouldn't really make the teaching more plausible. The problem to which the Buddha is pointing must be not only inevitable, but severe. Severe enough to give us reason to restructure our entire lives in order to follow the Buddhist path. Into each life some rain must fall, but that doesn't mean we should think of nothing but finding an umbrella. Some light may be shed by turning to the second noble truth, which reveals the cause of suffering. In a word, it is desire, lusting for pleasure, coveting possessions, and wanting to avoid death. Both our longing for certain things and our aversion to other things fall under the heading of what the Buddhist texts call tana, a general term for attached desire or craving. The counterproductive goals mentioned by the Buddha included the very goods that Brahmanic ritual was intended to achieve, such as a large family. For the Buddhist, the pursuit of these things guarantees dukkha. When you do not yet have them, you suffer from your unfulfilled craving, and the stronger your desire grows, the more you will suffer. When you do have them, that brings suffering too, as you fear their loss. In the longer term, a life guided by desire keeps us stuck in the never-ending cycle of reincarnation, with rebirth offering nothing but another opportunity to suffer. This is why the Buddha gave up his life as a royal prince, and more importantly, the values that it entailed. However cosseted he might be, he would still have to fear those universal perils of illness, age, and death. Following his example, many Buddhists have abandoned the so-called life of the householder, 
meaning a man who devotes himself to family and material prosperity. They became renouncers, who withdrew from society to live a monastic lifestyle, though of course Buddhism is also followed by lay people who support the monks and try to live by the Buddha's teachings. But we should not be misled by the term renouncers. Remember that the Buddha tried a lifestyle of extreme asceticism and found that it did not bring him to enlightenment. Instead, he taught a middle way between the householding life and the self-abnegation of some anti-Brahmanic traditions. This is highlighted at the very beginning of what has come down to us as his first sermon, which encourages the students to avoid the two extremes, on the one side a life devoted to passion, on the other deliberate self-torment and pain. Both are, according to the Buddha, ignoble and useless. Though the Buddha was rejecting the ideas and values of the Brahmins and their patrons, he did have at least one thing in common with them. He believed that salvation would come through knowledge. The cause of suffering is desire, but desire itself has a further cause, which is ignorance. Another chapter of the same Nikaya that transmits the first sermon explains that ignorance gives rise to karma and karma to consciousness, which leads to sensation and therefore to desire. Desire, in turn, leads to rebirth, and once you are born, you are, of course, subject to the familiar dangers of death, age, grief, and so on. The only way to get off this train of tears is to avoid boarding at the first station, by replacing your ignorance with understanding. Of course, the kind of understanding offered by the Buddha has nothing to do with propitiating the gods. The Vedic sacrifices are no more effective than the asceticism of other dissident groups. Though the Buddhists accepted the reality of the gods, they too were seen as subject to the cycle of rebirth. So even the gods are in need of liberation. And there was another difference between the Buddha's teaching and the Brahmanic tradition. Instead of exposing the hidden truth and correspondences that underlie everyday reality as the Upanishads claim to do, early Buddhism, seeks to unmask that reality as merely conventional. It's here that we move into the territory of the third and fourth noble truths, as we come to see how our life would need to be if we were to escape suffering and how to get to that goal. The Buddha's recommendation is as simple as it is radical. You can avoid being attached to the things that falsely seem to benefit you now and in the future if you give up on the idea that you have a self that can be benefited. It is through embracing and acting in accordance with this theory of no self that we reach nirvana, which is liberation from all suffering. Here, there may seem to be a contradiction within the Buddha's teaching. We've been encouraged to give up on all desire, but what about desire for liberation? Couldn't that too constitute a kind of longing or unsatisfied craving? In that case, the Buddha's teaching would just replace one sort of desire for another, as if he told us we could stay dry by coming in out of the rain to take a shower. But the project need not be a self-defeating one. After all, the whole teaching is predicated on the desire to avoid suffering. When we learn that suffering comes from cravings and fears, our initial desire to avoid suffering should be transformed into a more useful desire we should desire to lose all desire. This new desire is not just useful, but vital, if we are to reach our goal. But it may fall away once all other desires have been eliminated. 
When enlightenment and liberation come, the desire for liberation will no longer serve any purpose. As one Buddhism scholar has put it, craving is a stepping stone to getting rid of craving altogether. Still, it looks like there is at least one other desire of which the Buddha would approve, namely the desire to eliminate or annihilate ourselves. For, like contemporary Jainas and Ajifikas, he is trying to help us escape from the karmic cycle. But this would be a mistake. To quote again from the first sermon, the Buddha lists among the desires that lead to suffering the longing to continue existing, but also the longing to cease existing. The Buddhist way is instead to come to the realization that there is no self to annihilate. We've already said that this is diametrically opposed to Brahmanism, but it's worth restating the point. The Buddhists are rejecting the idea that there is some unseen, unchanging center of identity that underlies all cognition, all awareness. That leaves a lot of room for them to accept less metaphysically ambitious notions of the self. You don't need to accept the reality of a permanent self to believe that there is some sense in which you are the same person who started listening to this podcast a few minutes ago, or that while listening to the podcasts, you can be aware of yourself listening. On the other hand, it seems clear that the Buddhists did want to critique and revise our everyday assumptions about the reality of persons and other things. One classic text on the issue appears in the Melinda Panya, an early Buddhist text which depicts a sage called Nagasena in conversation with the Hellenistic king Menander, who ruled Bactria in the 2nd century BC. Though the setting is reminiscent of the Upanishads, the doctrine is not. At one point in the discussion, Nagasena tries to persuade the king that the familiar objects around us are considered to be whole substances only by convention. His example is a chariot. There is nothing more to it than its parts, the axle, the yoke, the wheels, the reins, and so on. Yet, this does not mean that there is no sense in which we can truly say, here is a chariot. It just means that the word chariot is a conventional one, a term we find convenient to apply to the whole aggregate of parts. Another nice example given in the Buddhist literature is a fist, which is evidently nothing more than the hand and fingers temporarily clenched together. And so it is with people, too. People are also aggregates which can lose and gain parts over time. One can imagine a Brahmanic sage responding that every aggregate is made up of constituents. These constituents may be made up of still further constituents, a paragraph is made up of sentences which are in turn made up of words, but in the end we must come to fundamental parts, like the letters of the words. So, if we are looking for fundamental realities that make up each person, why not identify the self as such a reality? Because the Buddhist has a rival answer to the same question. The Buddhists applied the name Dharma to these simple components of any aggregate. In the case we are most interested in, there are five types of Dharma that go to make up the person. To emphasize their merely aggregative nature, these are called skandhas, which means heaps. The skandhas include all aspects of our being, physical form, bodily feelings, emotions, perceptions and thinking, and consciousness itself. The list may sound vaguely familiar, since in the Upanishads, these phenomena are the ones that conceal the more fundamental self hidden within. But for the Buddhists, there is nothing to a person over and above the conglomeration of momentary skandhas. 
you are nothing other than your bodily states, your feelings and perceptions, all of which are present only momentarily, existing for a fleeting moment only to be replaced by other skandhas of the same time. Not that it would be right to identify yourself with any of these skandhas, individually or in aggregate, that would again represent attachment to the self. There are just the skandhas, and that is it. So, here we have arrived at what may be the most notorious philosophical doctrine of Buddhism, we are nothing more than flowing streams with no firm identity from time to time. This idea is going to be defended, and the Brahmanic theory of the unchanging self attacked, with great virtuosity by later Buddhists like Nagarjuna. But we already see it emerging in the Pali canon, often in the context of discussing reincarnation. Given that the Buddhists rejected the conception of an enduring self, you might expect that they would simply have given up on the whole idea of a cycle of rebirth, but there was no chance of that. It was a core teaching of the Buddha that desire leads to suffering in part because it triggers rebirth, and a fundamental part of the Buddha's spiritual journey was that he could remember his many past lives. In previous incarnations, he had already managed to become a bodhisattva, or enlightened one. But in an act of extraordinary generosity, the act which makes the Buddha not just a sage but the savior of humans and gods, he determined to return again and again until he was able to help others receive enlightenment, and not only himself. The rest of us are also reborn, though to less purpose. According to one of the Nikayas, the Buddha compared the person going through the cycle of reincarnation to a dog tied to a stake, fruitlessly running around in circles. Even the idea that caste membership is based on one's deeds in former lives can be found in early Buddhist literature. The Brahmanic tradition did not have a monopoly on this idea. Unlike the Brahmanic authors, though, the Buddhists, with their no-self doctrine, had an obvious difficulty in explaining the possibility of reincarnation. Their solution seems paradoxical, or even no answer at all. Reflecting on the widespread belief that we will be requited for our actions in the next life, they denied that he who experiences the fruit of the deed is the same as the one who performed the deed. But they also denied that the two are different. Is this more than the willing embrace of a contradiction? Yes, as we can see by thinking more carefully about the nature of an aggregate which is changing over time. Take a giraffe. Every day it loses and takes in matter thanks to its digestive cycle. So, if we were very strict about it, we might say that it is not exactly the same from day to day. Today it consists of different parts than the ones that made it up yesterday. On the other hand, it seems equally obvious that today's giraffe is not completely different from yesterday's. It retains some parts that it had before, which is why we can truthfully say that this giraffe gambling through the field now is the same as the one that was sleeping in her stable last night. And remember, the Buddhists are out to reject the Brahmanic idea that the self is completely the same across time, an unchanging foundation of identity which endures through changes in our perceptions and even from one life cycle to the next. If a person is nothing but an aggregate of changing skandhas, then it obviously falls well short of this kind of sameness across time. Yet it might be the same in some weaker sense, for example because the stream of skandhas is causally interconnected in some way. Buddhist philosophy was itself a changing agglomeration, with different thinkers holding rival views at one time and across the centuries. 
So it was when it came to this question we've just raised, what, if any, weaker sense of persistence might take a person from one incarnation to another? A minimal view is suggested by Nagasena's discussion of the chariot. Talking about one person as being the same across time would be merely a useful convention. At the other end of the spectrum, some Buddhists will later endorse the idea of an underlying subject which overlies or emerges from the skandhas and which can undergo rebirth. They called this subject the Pugala, and their school was accordingly called the Pugalavada. Other Buddhists, unsurprisingly, felt that this was tantamount to conceding the Brahmanic view of self. There are similar tensions in early Buddhist literature about how, exactly, our actions determine our fate in the next life. Sometimes the Buddha is quoted as mocking the Jaina idea that actions cause karma to adhere to us from one life to another. At other times we find him insisting, like the Ajivakas, that the right course is to avoid action entirely, precisely because it brings karma. Perhaps the inevitability of such tensions explains why at once, when the Buddha was asked whether there is really a self, he simply refused to answer. This strategy was a favorite of the Buddha's. Like many great thinkers, he had not only innovative and original proposals to make, touching on questions in metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, he also had an interesting view about the status of these very proposals. This is what we'll be discussing next time as we look at the philosophical method of early Buddhism and find out that the sound of silence can speak louder than words. Here on The History of Philosophy in India. <laughs>